Jesus heals our deafness so that the cry of the oppressed, always heard by God, can be heard by everyone as a call to solidarity and revolution. Jesus heals our blindness so that injustice against the oppressed, always seen by God, can be seen by everyone as an evil that must be overcome. Jesus heals our muteness so that the struggle of the oppressed, always voiced by God, can be voiced by everyone as a word that takes flesh. Jesus heals our paralysis, so that the movement of the oppressed, always the movement of God, can be the movement of everyone as a path to liberation. Jesus heals our selfishness, so that we can be socialist. This is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a weekly look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology, and I'm your host, David Inchauskas. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the third episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast, and this time we are going to discuss Clodovius Boff's epistemology and method in liberation theology. It's kind of a heady text. There's a lot going on in it, and it gets quite a bit theoretical, but we're going to bring it home and work through it together. You may have noticed that scholars really do like to work in terms of threes, and so Boff here does work in terms of threes. He has theory, forms, and method as the sections of the text. And in the first part of the chapter on theory, Boff generates five theses. And it really is always nice when writers tell you exactly what they are writing about and what they are arguing by setting their theses apart in italics. And that's what Boff does here. So thank you, Boff, for that. The first thesis is that liberation theology is an integral theology, but that deals with the positivity of the faith within the particular perspective of the poor and their liberation. What does it mean? Boff is relying on some traditional philosophical distinctions, and the philosopher in me loves it. The particular and the universal, the part and the whole, the formal and the material. As for particular and universal, part and whole, According to Plato and Aristotle, universal forms are instantiated in particular material objects. And so if we take the universal form of the Catholic faith, we can say that liberation theology instantiates or constitutes a particular manifestation of the Catholic faith. It zeroes in on the social, political, economic dimension of the faith. There's nothing wrong with zeroing in on this particular dimension or on any particular dimension of the faith. After all, we don't criticize St. Therese of Lisieux, a cloistered nun, for failing to actively advance social justice. She lived out a particular incarnation of the universal Catholic faith, and that's perfectly fine. Liberation theology lives out a different particular incarnation of the universal apostolic faith, and that's also fine. On the distinction between the material and the formal, Boff says that liberation theology is materially global and formally particular. What could that mean? He's saying that, I think, the stuff of liberation theology, its matter, is the stuff of Catholicism in general, a global religion that touches on every aspect of the life of humanity, material and psycho-spiritual. But the shape of that, that that stuff takes, its form, is the shape of the Latin American struggle. That's why Boff defines liberation theology 
as both, quote, historical liberation in the light of integral liberation, end quote, and, quote, integral liberation that places an emphasis on historical liberation, end quote. Liberation theology is in dialogue with the faith as a whole. For example, Juan Luis II will often cite church fathers and early ecumenical councils in his writings, but liberation theology hones in on the material reality of Latin America because, well, that's the current dilemma, and Christ always speaks to the present moment. Boff's second thesis is the following, quote, The primary and fundamental optic of the liberation theology movement is positive faith. Its second and particular optic is the experience of the oppressed, end quote. By this, he means that like all Christian theology, liberation theology proceeds from what God positively affirms in divine revelation, most importantly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also in the Old Testament as in the Exodus event of Hebrew liberation from slavery. This absolute reliance on God's word is what makes liberation theology Christian theology. That said, God's word is not dead, but living and active, as the same scriptures tell us. So this positive faith or objective faith must be in dialogue with living experience, what Boff calls subjective faith. And the living experience of Latin America, like the Exodus event, is an experience of liberation from a history of oppression. You take these two, objective and subjective, you mix them together in the context of Latin America, and you get liberation theology. Boff's third thesis is more contentious. He says that liberation theology, while born of a particular regional circumstance, must now become an intrinsic and permanent dimension of all Catholic theology. But then again, uh, maybe it's not so controversial. After all, he points out the term, quote, preferential option for the poor, end quote, born of liberation theology in Latin America, has now made its way into the magisterial teaching of bishops, even the writings of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, the leader of the Universal Church, even the alleged condemnation of liberation theology emerging from the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in the 1980s clearly uh, states that, quote, a theology of freedom and liberation can constitutes a demand of our time, end quote. So if one is not responding to this urgent contemporary demand in some concrete way, there's a problem. Boff writes, quote, Every theologian has to make of their theology a theology of liberation, end quote. And that is so key. Theology that does not address the concrete struggle for liberation is just bad theology. God hears the cry of the poor and responds. If a theologian doesn't, if the church doesn't, then something is wrong. How could a community that professes faith in Jesus, who brought good news to the poor of their impending emancipation, fail to do the same, especially today, when the cry of the poor is coming in loud and clear? Next, Boff makes an important distinction. Ethical political liberation has a primacy of urgency, but liberation from sin and death has a primacy of value. Here, Boff admits that the end game of Christianity, its ultimate value is communion with God. And this communion with God has an undeniable spiritual and eternal orientation. Nevertheless, and it's a big nevertheless, the material is first in the order of execution. 
Jesus gives the mystical bread of life discourse in John 6, but first, he feeds the crowds with physical bread. In John's letters, it's also clear, you can't love God who you can't see unless you love your neighbor who you can see. St. Paul, uh, similar to John here, says in 1 Corinthians, quote, it's not the spiritual that comes first, but the animal. The spiritual comes after, end quote. Jesus does go off to pray alone, but he spends the vast majority of his time in the Gospels doing very human, material things. Healing, fishing, eating, traveling, talking, touching. Liberation theology is like that. It knows, as Jesus preached, that God's kingdom is, in some sense, not of this world. But it also knows, as Jesus preached, that God's kingdom is at hand. And repenting and believing in the gospel takes the very real historical form of literally following Jesus by selling everything, giving to the poor, and dedicating oneself afresh every day to a life of love here and now. Christ became human so that we could be divine. Our divine salvation runs inextricably through our humanity. Even in eternal life, after all, we will have bodies. Boff's final theoretical thesis claims that liberation theology does not stand in opposition to theology present and past, but rather assumes a critical complementarity. The chief discourse of liberation theology should be one of continuity with its predecessors, but there's no denying that the method is a new and particularly fruitful branch on the one tree of Christian theology, and that this branch juts out in a direction that differs from other branches. It does not start with general doctrine and then move to particular application. Rather, it starts with the experience of the oppressed and then draws from the deep well of Christian revelation to interpret it. Recall Gutierrez's sense of liberation theology as a second act. It does not relish cold, dry scholarship, but rather hot prophetic action. It does not maintain the status quo, but challenges it so as to move ever closer to utopia, the fullness of the kingdom. As a plant is rooted in the ground, but tends to draw upwards ever closer to the sun, liberation theology is rooted in the deep, rich ground of the Catholic faith, but tends to draw upwards ever closer to the light of freedom in Christ the Son. Just as the soul has an upward yearning towards inner virtue, society has an upward yearning for social virtue, and both are holy. Sticking with the plant analogy from before, we all love a good plant analogy, uh, Poff distinguishes three forms of liberation theology professional, pastoral, and popular, and associates them with parts of a tree. The popular form consists of lay people who participate in Christian-based communities. They are the roots. The pastoral form consists of priests, sisters, brothers, and lay pastoral ministers. They are the trunk. The professional form consists of academic theologians, and they are the branches. Together, there is one unity. Boff writes that the same sap runs from the roots up the trunk to the branches. But rather than describing each of these forms in the abstract, I prefer to tell one story about a lay community 
one story about a pastor and one story about a theologian. And let's begin with the base community, that described by the Nicaraguan priest, poet, and revolutionary Ernesto Cardenal in his book, The Gospel in Solentiname. For some background, the book begins, quote, In Solentiname, a remote archipelago in Lake Nicaragua of peasant stock, we have on Sunday, instead of a sermon about the gospel, a dialogue. The commentaries of the campesinos are often of much more depth than those of many theologians, but of a simplicity like that of the gospel itself. It shouldn't be a surprise. The gospel or good news to the poor was written for them by people like them. End quote. The book recounts some of these camp- campesino dialogues on the Sunday Gospels. One of the richest discussions, in my opinion, is in reference to the following passage. Quote, then John said to him, Jesus, We saw a man who was casting out evil spirits in your name, and we forbade him since he wasn't one of us. But Jesus told him, Don't forbid him, because whoever is not against us is with us. End quote. Immediately, one campesino, Alejo, relates the biblical situation to the local situation of Nicaragua. There are some who are doing great work for society in the revolution, but they are not with us in that they are not Christians. They are atheist communists. And then one, Pancho, objects that those in the passage did their work in the name of Jesus, but that communists do not work in the name of Jesus. Another interprets, quote, communists use the name of liberation, which is the same thing that Jesus was doing, end quote. After some more discussion, the group seems to approach a conclusion in the words of Elbis and Alejo, quote, Jesus does not divide people into those who are Christians and those who are not. Those who kick out the devil, those who are getting rid of the evil in the world, they are those who are on our side. Jesus shows us a church that is big and wide, end quote. This exchange is fascinating because it's the same basic conversation happening in academic journals and books at the time. You'd find a very similar reflection in Juan Luis II's Our Idea of God, and in Giulio Girardi's Sandinismo, Marxism, and Christianity in the New Nicaragua. They're all talking about what is the relationship between Christians and communists. How do these two things go together? How can they work together? Is it possible for Christians and communists to work together? And that's just as the community is talking about these things, so too the academic theologians are talking about these things. And so Boff is right to say that the same sap is running through the tree. And Cardenal is right to say that theology from the base community is often richer than that of many theologians who would not dare to get mixed up in some real relevant pressing questions. So there we see the deep roots of popular liberation theology drawing water from the well of the biblical word. What about pastoral liberation theology? I immediately think of a contemporary living witness to good pastoral liberation theology. Father Ismael Moreno of the Society of Jesus in Honduras. And people call him Padre Melo. And I've had the privilege to get to know uh, Padre Melo a bit through my research in Honduras. Melo is the director of the Jesuit radio station, Radio Progreso, and the Honduran Jesuit Social Action and Analysis Center 
the Reflection, Investigation, and Communication team in Spanish, Eric. You won't find any books on liberation theology written by Melo, but you will find him in the streets at protests, at meetings with revolutionary leaders, and on air denouncing the people and processes of oppression at work in Honduras. Well before the Honduran dictator Juan Orlando Hernández ran for an unconstitutional second term a few years ago, Melo was denouncing the autocrats' political posturing every step of the way. Melo is beloved by the people of Honduras because he is a pastor in solidarity with the struggle of the oppressed. For example, in 2015, 2016, and 2017, part of which uh, during that time we overlapped uh, when I was visiting Honduras, and at that time when the National Autonomous University of Honduras was criminalizing student demonstrators, even at the protest of the United Nations, students invited Melo to be a partner in their negotiations with university authorities. His leadership, in part, uh, led to agreements between the parties, but the university only redoubled its oppression of students in the wake, leading to more arrests and even the murder of the father of one of the arrested student protesters. Confronted with this escalation, Melo continued to promote dialogue and advocated for the inclusion of student voices at the table when the university wanted to act unilaterally against students. But his solidarity with the students led to accusations against him of agitation to violence. And the rector of the university, Julieta Castellanos, among others, resorted to calling Melo, the Jesuits, and the radio personnel communists, atheists, and anarchists. All of this, together with Melo's strong, clear, consistent voice for justice on other topics, like the economy, politics, and the environment, brought on a tidal wave of death threats against the priest, my Jesuit brother. What has Pope Francis said about pastors? They should smell like the sheep. And Melo smells like the sheep. He is one with defenders of rivers and mountains. He is one with defenders of democracy. He is one with defenders of the rights of students. He is one with people who suffer the most. He hears their cry. They know his name, and he knows their names. He is a good shepherd. He's willing to lay down his life for his sheep, and he continues to work despite the threats. He loves his own, and he loves them until the end. If you want to learn more about Padre Melo, I would really recommend an article in the Jesuit Post. The Jesuit Post is kind of an online magazine that is published by Jesuits in Formation. It has commentary on current events and uh, and spirituality and pop culture and whatnot. And in the Jesuit Post, there's an article by my friend in the Society of Jesus, Matt Ippel, also a Jesuit in Formation, and it's called Finding Hope in Honduras, Padre Melo's Fight for Human Rights. And I would highly recommend checking that out because it tells the story in full, only a part of which I just shared with you all now. So I think Melo is a great example of pastoral liberation theology, but what about the professional kind? And, and here's where I can share a bit of my own story, not as a professional theologian, since I'm not one, but as someone who has been influenced by professional theology very much. You might not be surprised that I like to read books about theology, and 
many of these books have changed me. And takes, take uh, Juan Luis Segundo's The Liberation of Theology. Now, before reading the text, I must admit, I thought of theology as a deduction of principles from sacred scripture. Maybe not, maybe I wouldn't have put it that way, but operationally, that was the way that my mind worked. It was as if every element of theology needed justification in the Bible. Moreover, you know, I thought that Jesus' words and actions must be the model of my own words and actions. A passage from Segundo's book in the part, The Theology is a Second Step, in the chapter, The Political Option, showed me just how misguided my former way of thinking was. Segundo mentions the passage in the Bible in which the Pharisees ask Jesus for a sign from heaven, and Jesus tells them, quote, In the evening you say, it will be fine weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning you say, it will be stormy today, the sky is red and lowering. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. Can you not interpret the signs of the times? End quote. From Matthew chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. Segundo comments, quote, Jesus tries to show them that they must leave room and openness in their theology for the relative, provisional, uncertain nature of criteria that human beings actually use to direct their lives and history when they are open to what is going on around them, end quote. What Segundo means is that we cannot and should not, even by Jesus' own direction, look to Jesus to solve every problem for us. We have to grow up and learn to think for ourselves. In our own day, it would be a mistake to act as Jesus acted in every way because Jesus belonged to a particular historical context, and that particular historical context is not ours today. We cannot deduce our way of proceeding from Jesus and the Bible alone. We must be free to respond to the exigencies of the present moment with the help of the Holy Spirit that Jesus bestowed on us. We cannot, like the disciples after Jesus' ascension, look to Jesus as the sole criterion of our way of proceeding. Jesus gave us a mission to build the reign of God. Now we have to do it. And I must confess that this new way of thinking, of which Segundo so clearly convinced me, was scary at first. Was I denying Christ? Was I becoming less Christocentric? The answer must be a firm no. For freedom, Christ has set us free. We have the freedom of the children of God. Christ became human so that we can become divine. The exaltation of our human nature in Christ does not take away from Christ. As Irenaeus wrote, quote, the glory of God is the human being fully alive, end quote. A revolution in my thinking had occurred after reading Segundo, and it was precisely because of the writing of an academic theologian. And now I carry this perspective with me. It informs my work as a professor. It informs my work as a pastoral minister and it informs the way I interact with folks in my church community. We see that Boff is right. Academic theology is an important part of liberation theology, and I am a witness to its impact. Thanks be to Segundo.
The last part of Boff's text gets into the method of liberation theology. And since we have already discussed it a bit on previous episodes with Oliveros, I want to draw our attention to some methodological aspects that we have not yet seen. Boff identifies three ways of approaching the phenomenon of poverty, empiricist, functionalist, and dialectical. Each approach proposes a certain possible solution. According to the empiricist approach, poverty is a vice. Poor people are poor because they are lazy, because they are dumb, or because they are evil. The empiricist only sees the individual, not the structure, and attributes the individual's poverty to the individual's error. Boff says that the empiricist thinks the solution is almsgiving. You give to the poor and hope that they don't spend your money on drugs. According to the functionalist approach, poverty is backwardness. Poor people are poor because they have yet to enjoy the developmental progress that comes from liberal capitalist society. The proposed solution here is reformism. Poor countries should adopt the economic and social policies of rich countries, then they will be rich. Boff thinks that both the empiricist and functionalist approaches are flawed, though he notes that, at least in the second one, poverty is seen as a collective problem, not an individual one, and that's a small step in the right direction. But finally, according to the dialectical approach, poverty is oppression. Boff cites John Paul II's encyclical, Laborum Exercens. The root of the problem of poverty is the supremacy of capital over labor, capital being controlled by the few and labor being the domain of the many. The solution is now, according to Boff, revolution. Capitalism turns human beings from subjects into objects of the mindless and suffocating laws of the market. So there must be a revolution towards a post-capitalist society that places humans back in the place of subjects, acting instead of being acted upon by the market. That revolution will be a conflictive affair. Labor must rebel against capital because capital, at least for the time being, will not rebel against itself. On this topic, I cannot recommend enough the book The Ideological Weapons of Death by Franz J. Hinkelammert, with a foreword by Cornell West. It goes into this whole problem of subject-object using the Marxist idea of fetishism. And it's a brilliant take on the relationship between theology and economics. As is often the case, it's published by our excellent friends at Orbis Books, and I get no royalties from Orbis for saying so. I just think they publish some great books. Uh, Boff goes on to make a really key point about poverty. And as we say in Spanish, ojo, it's a big and controversial one. Economic poverty, economic oppression, is not the only kind of oppression. There is also racial oppression, as against black people, ethnic oppression, as against indigenous people, and sexual oppression, as against women. However, Boff argues, quote, Class struggles are the primary struggles, end quote. And then he fills out this assertion, quote, Other types of oppression represent superstructural oppressions and are conditioned deeply by the socioeconomic infrastructural oppression. In effect, 
One thing is a black taxi driver, and another is a black soccer star. Similarly, one thing is a female domestic worker, and another is the first lady of a nation. One thing is a native person whose land has been looted. Another is a native person who owns his or her land. End quote. So Boff accept, accepts the Marxist principle here. Economic reality conditions, determines, occasions. Uh, pick your interpretation of Marx. Uh, quite a debate about that in the literature. Uh, but either it conditions, determines, occasions, or some other word, all other forms of reality. And that said, Boff does advance a version of what we call intersectionality. Quote, a poor person is more oppressed when, aside from poor, she is black, indigenous, a woman, and or elderly. End quote. What are we to make of Boff's argument? I think there is a truth and a danger here. On one hand, we absolutely do not want to pit oppressed groups against each other, and that's the danger. It's not helpful to ask whether it is worse for a gay person to be murdered for being gay, for a black person to be murdered for being black, or for a poor person to die of structural murder for being poor. On the other hand, we absolutely do want to affirm the truth that unless capitalist infrastructure is overcome, we will not be able to have freedom and equality. There is no just anti-racist capitalism. There is no just feminist capitalism. There is no just LGBTQ-affirming capitalism. The oppressed will not be totally free without socialism. Earlier, I mentioned that Juan Luis II wrote that the historical Jesus is not the ultimate criterion of contemporary action because the historical Jesus exists within a historical context that is not the contemporary historical context. An action must, by its nature, respond to the present time and place. This framework will help us understand why Boff asserts that liberation theologians have preferred books of the Bible. We might think that since all the Bible is inspired, there can be no such thing as preferred books, but Boff is real. Some parts of the Bible speak to current events more than others. That's just the way it is. He highlights that in Latin America, because of the present context of oppression and people's desire for liberation, people look to Exodus, the prophets, the gospels, the acts of the apostles, and revelation. He then writes that there's a special place for the books of the Maccabees, since these books, quote, feed faith in a context of legitimate armed insurrection, end quote. This is natural, organic. Not all biblical texts are equally relevant for all circumstances. That's just the reality, and the liberation theologians acknowledge this reality. Boff concludes with another reality that we must acknowledge, but that's hard for some to hear. He writes, quote, In the third world, among the last and the least, faith is also and above all political, end quote. How could one look at the signs of the times, the red in the sky, in Latin America, and fail to see that the times are calling for revolutionary political action? How could one look to Jesus for a sign from heaven when action is happening here on earth? The oppressed have discerned the signs of the times. We saw with Oliveros that the signs of the times are poverty. The oppressed have discerned that their response must be liberation. We saw that 
with Gutierrez that the con construction of a new socialist society is the path to this liberation. And we Christians would do well to heed these signs and commit ourselves to liberation. That's the Spirit's call of our age. Thanks so much for listening to this third episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Our discussion of Boff was great, and I'm also really excited for our next show. We'll get into Enrique Dussel's amazing chapter on liberation theology and Marxism. And we'll hear from a special guest, Dean Detloff of the Magnificast, a podcast on Christianity and leftist politics. He'll help us sort through the relationship between Marxism and liberation theology, and he'll offer some beneficial perspectives, both personal and political. I look forward to it, and I hope that you are looking forward to it, too. But for now, let's end with prayer, and this one attributed to St. Teresa of Avila. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks, seeing compassion in this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.